welcome to the Resound Worship Songwriting Podcast, episode 30. This is an interview special where I am pleased to be joined by Aaron Keys. Aaron, it's great hey, hey, to hey. welcome you to the podcast. Thank you, Joel. Do you want to just tell us uh, where you are in the world? We're based in the UK. Where are you at the moment? And is it sunny? Yeah. I'm in the United States, in Atlanta. It's mm. uh, It was 70 degrees yesterday here, that, which was like short sleeve weather, which is amazing. Oh, that's nice. It's, abs- it's very grey and cold and wet here in the UK. I don't know how you do it. No, I suppose we just have to, we're just a burden we have to bear. Um, you're, you're there in your, in your home. I watched, um, uh, in preparation for this, I looked through some of your living room videos. And I, and I just once is, is that your actual living room? Because it looks really yeah. nice. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that's actually right out How this door. Cool. That's nice. And do you normally have all those lovely, smiling, musical people in there? Is that- yeah, all the time, man. We have uh, a house full of worship leaders all the time often they just live with this you know oh, for, brilliant. yeah now this is this is actually true isn't it so you you yeah. run a thing called Ten Thousand fathers which i'm guessing mm-hmm. comes from one corinthians in terms of the reference it does um, yes and i've i've heard i've kind of heard you describe it i've read the stuff you describe it about um taking uh, helping people move from being worship leaders who lead songs to being worship pastors who lead people can you just sort of mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about that and the, and the kind of motivation behind it Sure, yeah. I mean, for us, Jesus changed the world not through writing songs, um, not even through the amazing preaching, although it's the best preaching the world's ever seen, Sermon on the Mount, you know, best philosophical thought the world's ever known. He changed the world through investing in some guys that invested in some other people who invested in other people. And um, we just want to get back to that Great Commission. It's like in worship, we've Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. I'm sending you out, make disciples. And we've made albums and we've made excuses and we've made click tracks. We've made everything except disciples. Um, And so we're trying to just come back to say, you know, there's actually not a verse. Uh, If you guys interviewed Malcolm, you would have already heard this, I'm sure. There's not a verse in the New Testament that talks about the role of the worship leader. There's a lot about worship, a lot about leadership, nothing about what we call worship leadership. And so we just have to reckon, like, we have to wrestle with that and say, okay, we can't go along the, the stream of what culture says. We, we can take advantage of what culture has provided for worship leaders in terms of influence in the church and opportunity to, to build into people and edify, but we can't get seduced into thinking that just because we're writing some nice songs, singing some nice songs, and having some nice services, that that's actually changing anything. So you... Um, you- bring people to your home and that's is this right they live with you and and it's a kind of discipleship process where they where presumably you teach to some extent but it's about modeling and sharing together yeah we bought this house god provided a a tour bus so we could just do all of life with people who want to get into this with their lives because um i mean you, you mentioned first corinthians four paul says to the church at corinth they had everything they had miracles signs wonders tongues I mean, they had it all, and they didn't have what they needed. Because Paul said, even if you have 10,000 teachers, you don't have fathers. And that's what you need. That's what I've become for you. And so the language in the New Testament after the book of Acts, you won't even find the word disciple. You find fathers, sons, children. No greater joy do I have than that my children walk in truth. That's John. Paul saying stuff like, I want to come. I can't. I'm sending you my son, Timothy, who I love. 
it's such a difference to to see the people that God's brought into our lives as family instead of as you know pupils or students. Yeah. They don't just need what we know; they need to see how we put it into practice. Yeah. And so we just said we we want to invite our invite people into our lives to do hospitality, community, the whole thing, do it all together. Did when you started? So you've been doing that what a few years? How long? Almost 10 years. 10 years. And when you started, did you imagine, did you think you were going to love it? Did you have a sense of trepidation? We didn't know what we were doing, man. <laughs> <laughs> we were just trying to help. We were, I would get so many calls from pastors um, that I would meet on the road, um, pastors who would say, hey, you know, we loved how you guys came and led. Do you know anyone that could come do that for us? Right. And um, after getting three of those calls in three days one week, I met with my pastor, I met with my wife and said, what are we going to do about this? Because there are, as soon as churches started proliferating with the aid of video technology in the U.S. at least, it's like we can put pastors anywhere on any screen and and pop up a church tomorrow, but what's going to happen with worship? Yeah. And and where are these people going to come from? And, and are they going to be theologically trained? Are they going to be pastorally, you know, nuanced and discerning and hospitable? Are they going to be like New Testament leaders? Or are they going to be like YouTube celebrities? And it's just amazing because, I mean, the pastors in our churches, the vicars, whatever, they've gone through years, maybe a decade of education and training to prepare. The worship leaders in our churches might have played guitar for a couple of years and watched YouTube I mean, and they get as much time to influence the congregation. What we think about ourselves, about God, about our role in the world, we get as much time as this guy who's got a PhD. And so we're, we're, we're saying, first of all, that's staggering. Let's at least take advantage of it and be sober-minded about it and responsible with it. Have you seen that culture change, do you think, in the, in the last 10 in the sort of broader scene? Do you think that culture is beginning to change Yes, uh, more and more churches are starting worship schools, which is good, but it's not enough. School is not enough. Um, if it were, uh, good grief, things would be different. But learning the information is part of it. But that's not what changed Jesus' disciples. What changed, I mean, if you look in Mark three fourteen, this is where Jesus calls his guys to be with him. It says he appointed 12 so that they would be with him. Fast forward all the way through his ministry, life, death, burial, resurrection, Pentecost, Acts 4, verse 13, talks about Peter and John are preaching with so much authority. It says the people were amazed Mm. and recognized these were untrained, ordinary men, but said, but they have been with Jesus. So all this authority that they carried, the same thing that everyone marveled at with Jesus teaching, his authority. We've never heard anyone with such authority. He's passed that on to these next generation guys. They have what he carried, which is what he said they would have. You're going to do what I've done and greater things. What I have, what I have seen is worship schools start to proliferate. What I haven't seen um, are the people with a lot of authority bringing up other people to have their own authority and actually surpass the original leaders. And it's, I get it. It's nobody's fault. It's really hard. It's really costly yeah. to prioritize. I mean, Tuesday to Friday, 10 to 12, teaching the Bible to four guys in my basement, you know? Um, I mean, we for years we did the residential model where people just came and lived with us, like you said. Now we do a lot of intensive models where people come in, they spend a week, and then we do weekly co- coaching online, video conferencing just like this. Uh, and that's 18 months where people come for a, a week every six months. But it's just hard to prioritize 
time with just five or six people just working through spiritual disciplines, working through, you know, <laughs> fasting or uh, songwriting or watching video of them lead at their church and give them input. Yeah. It's just hard to prioritize that if I've got my own thing just popping off and I need to build that and feed that and... You know, our culture and for our culture, leadership, you'll step on anyone to get higher. But with Jesus, he just keeps it's a race to the bottom with Jesus, just trying to raise other people higher. Um, and that that just doesn't work in a in a pyramid economy mm. of celebrity. So we're not we're actually not trying to flip the pyramid. We're trying to squash it. OK. I'm writing that down. <laughs> well, I mean, and this so much of this comes from Malcolm, you know? I mean, the priesthood of believers. We yeah. want to get back to everyone has something to carry. Yeah. You've got something that I don't have. I can't give what you can give. So in relationship, in community, we can actually sharpen each other. We can be building up each other. Stuff that couldn't happen if it was just a one-way street. I mean, Jesus, Jesus didn't just, he just did not do individualism. And he did not do um, isolationism. He did relationship, bringing people into his life. And um, sorry, we're just like jumping right on in here. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> but this is like, I've been reflecting on this because yeah. um, the pastor that I've been working with for the last, since the year 2000, um, he just passed away uh, on Sunday. Oh, wow. And um, it's a really sad thing. Yeah. Um, he, he was an amazing man. He's the reason that we started our school the way we did. He had leaders living in his basement. And we just thought, well, let's just do that. Um, he, his big passion was making disciples. And um, one of the things that he always says to his buddy, he always said, you don't reproduce what you want. You reproduce who you are. Hmm. You don't reproduce what you want. You reproduce who you are. Um, why did I get into that now that I think about it? Good grief. <laughs> Uh, I don't remember where I was. We I were, just started we were squashing about... the pyramid at one point. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, wait, wait. Is that going to help me? Hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> Priesthood of believers. Everyone's got something. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, okay. So yesterday, I'm sitting with his family, his wife, and his kids, planning his funeral. I'm leading worship for the funeral, yeah. and it's going to be. Uh, it's this week. And um, I was just writing this morning in my morning writing that. I had this epiphany on the way home from that meeting yesterday because they want the songs that they're requesting are all these songs that I've written. There's a Rich Mullins Mullins song and then five of mine. Yeah. And uh, I don't think it's because my songs are these great songs. I think I just never realized that all this time I knew I was ministering with them. I never knew I was ministering to them. Yeah. Um, But I was just thinking about that. That is what discipleship is looks like it's not one way it's not a teacher to a student it is mutual it's symbiotic and it's reciprocal in the same way that i get so much from my own kids i learn so much about life about love about fun joy laughter um from my own they bring so much treasure into my life um this is how it ought to be in the kingdom instead jesus is like the Gentiles lord over authority over each other. That should not be in my kingdom. But we've just adopted so many of those same practices in in church. And so we're trying to change that within 2000 Fathers to say, it's not like we have all the answers. Yeah. We're just a, a little bit further down the road. And we want to actually build into you in such a way that you so far surpass us. We want your songs to be better than ours. We want your your ministries to go further than ours. And we will give you everything that we've got to make sure that happens 
And we haven't succeeded until that happens. It reminds me, as you're saying that, a few, um, a number of years, maybe 15 years ago or so, I was at a gathering of songwriters, which was led by Graham Kendrick. And uh, at the end of the thing, he got us to go around and pray a double, basically it's kind of a double blessing on each other. Basically to say, Lord, whatever blessing you've given me in songwriting, I pray for a double blessing Mm -hmm. on, on this guy or this woman. And it, mm-hmm. that was incredibly profound and powerful. And it, uh, it sounds like that pyramid turned upside down saying, actually, what, what I want to pray for and hope for is that others actually get, basically, and I find myself pray, you know, praying they, we'd sing your songs before you sing mm-hmm. mine and, and this kind of thing. And it's a great, it's a great culture. Um, and, and I hear you, it's a biblical model. It's a kind of, it's a Jesus model, isn't it? That's the way to go. I mean, it's not just Elijah and Elisha with the old portion. It's Moses, Joshua. It's Jesus, the disciples, Paul. Whenever the baton is passed and not dropped, serious breakthrough happens in this, you know, in this history of the Bible. Um, but the thing is, we we get so caught up on our thing that we we end up with axioms like it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. It's yeah. not a sprint. I'm saying it's not a marathon. It's a relay. You know, and it doesn't matter how fast you run. If you drop the baton, you're out. Um, And most of the generations drop the baton in the Bible. Um, I'm just trying to say, let's not just keep that going. Jesus didn't do that. Why would we? Yeah. Now you um, work with these um, worship pastors and I know some of what you do is you do, you teach on songwriting and you work Mm -hmm. with them on songs and you you share songs together and uh, and work together. I've got, I guess I've got two questions. One is I'd like to hear about how you do that and how you help to try and develop songwriters. But just before that, to, to ask about how you see the connection of the worship pastor and the worship songwriter, whether that's a sort of a, a necessary connection. Is every worship pastor a, a songwriter? or are they diff- Do you see mm. them as different callings that sometimes go together? I, I'm, I'm interested in how you see that. Yeah, I've had a big shift in my thinking because I used to. Um, I, I'm not a natural songwriter. My college roommate was a natural songwriter. He wrote like three songs a week, yeah. <laughs> and I just kind of sang harmony and came up with different guitar inversions <laughs> to play along with them, you know? Um, but, but it started changing for me and I used to be content to just lead everyone else's songs, um, for a long time. I mean, probably until about 10 years ago it was, um, but it started changing in me when God started doing stuff in me that I didn't have other people's songs to articulate. Um, there, there weren't songs that I could just use to pray what I felt like I needed to pray. Hmm. And so... Um, I was I would I began writing songs and would record I recorded several albums of those songs but I still wouldn't lead any of those songs. Okay. Um, and then I was doing because I was I don't I was maybe I was being deferent or um, shy or insecure. Or, it's I mean it's really hard to expect one of your songs to stand up with a song that stood up for two hundred years yeah, yeah. from the Wesleys or you know a Chris Tomlin song that the whole world is yeah. singing. Like good luck, you know, getting <laughs> one of your first offerings. To yeah. be able to hang with that. Yeah. Good luck, you know. Um, and I was doing an event in Brazil, goodness, maybe seven, eight years ago. And I was just leading everyone else's songs, you know, all in Portuguese. I had to learn all these songs in Portuguese. Mm. And um, after a couple nights, the, the one of the, the, the wife of the family that runs this conference said, you have to sing your songs tomorrow. And I was like, oh, gosh, I don't know. I think we should just keep singing, you know, How Great Is Our God. Yeah. And she's like, your songs... You're the only one that can offer what you've written and you need to offer that. That's what the room needs. And so the next night, I just very, you know, 
coyly began leading my own songs in Portuguese some, or in English. Yeah, I'd learned them in Portuguese. Yeah, they Just, translated. Oh, them. that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it probably wasn't very fluent Portuguese. <laughs> I sounded like a two-year-old, you know. I mean, but, um, that's the way to I, go into leading your own songs. Let's just do it yeah. in a completely different language. <laughs> yeah, it feels like someone else's yeah, song. That's, that's nice. good. Um, but something shifted in the room, and she asked me afterwards. She's like, "Could you feel that?" I said, I, "Actually, I could." Yeah. And so things started shifting for me, where I'm still really happy to sing um, other people's songs. But I recognize now there are so many things that God's done in me that he hasn't done in Chris Tomlin. And, and I love Chris. Um, he's a good friend. But I, I, I want to, I love to be able to join with what God's done in Chris. But I, I can't forsake what God's only done in me. And I have to offer that to the Lord too. So I, I don't think, I, I definitely don't think every worship leader, every worship pastor needs to be an accomplished songwriter. Mm-hmm. But I do think Every worship leader, every worship pastor needs to value what God's done in them enough to be willing to at least learn a few things about songwriting so that they can share it in a compelling way. Because we we do teach, we spend a lot of time teaching on songwriting at 10,000 Fathers. I mean, it's probably about 10 hours of lecture, you know, that we've distilled from Berkeley School of Music in Boston. Okay. Um, we've put together all kinds of tools. And we don't expect, you know, if, we, if there's almost 300 students that have come into are a part of or have graduated from worship school at this point i don't expect that 250 of them are going to be good songwriters maybe 30 of them will maybe 50 maybe three i don't know um but i do expect that that somewhere out in their churches out of those 300 worship leaders there are some amazing young 16 year old 18 year old 14 year old kids in those churches who if they saw their worship leader say Hey, here's a little song that I've just written about what God's doing in my life. Um, if it's not the worst thing that that student's ever heard, um, that student might just perk up and say, I think God might have some songs in me. Can you help me figure out how to articulate what God's done in me too? And so for me, songwriting is just, it's such an opportunity for discipleship because yeah. it's so practical. It's so uh, such a conscious competency that we can develop um, and it's such an opportunity for us to invite other people into our lives. So probably three days a week, I'm inviting other people into my life to write with me. That's what I'm doing in two hours. I have a weekly Wednesdays at 2.30 songwriting, you know? Um, and so I feel like, no, everyone's not going to be good at it. Uh, but everyone should at least be willing to grow in it enough that they can offer something that could actually catalyze what God might want to do in the people in their community into discipleship. That's a, uh, for, that for me feels like a, quite a, a fresh way of thinking about it. I mean, I think we've, we've, we talk a lot with Resound about the kind of your unique voice as a local church songwriter, that you, you're able to express things in a way that Chris Tomlin or anybody else can't sure. do because they're not part of your community um, and, the, and the added value of that. But this idea that actually songwriting is a part of it's just carrying on this discipleship thing I can see, which is woven through so much of what you do. Um, and actually, it struck me as well as when you were speaking that teaching somebody about worship, leading worship pastoring, actually to the process of analysing songwriting is a sort of a flip side of the process of analysing worship songs. And, you know, how do you choose good songs to sing? What do you want your worship to be about? And, and, and so on. So mm-hmm. actually, by teaching songwriting, you're, it's part of developing good worship leaders, I guess. 
Yeah, I think so. And so when we teach songwriting, we break things up into three different modules. So we have these three different tracks, three six-month emphases. First, character, competency, and then calling. We, we put some of the competency into the first track, the competency of melody. So there are elements that make melodies beautiful. There are elements that make melody boring. You know, there are things that make melody strong, things that make melody weak. Um, and, you know, if we had time, I would love for you to pull up all these John Williams movie scores. Yeah. Because they are stunning. And if you took the melody from Jaws and put it on, you know, Forrest Gump, it wouldn't work. Um, I mean, those are two different, I guess, you know, composers. But if you took Star Wars yeah. and put it with Schindler's List, mm. it'd be awful. You know, there are there's something about it fitting. Yeah. Um, and so learning some of the basic compositional elements of melody. So we teach that stuff. And again, not because we expect everyone to be great songwriters, but leading worship. If you're going to sing a new song, if you're going to go into the spontaneous, into the prophetic, people are going to get really sick of you every week doing five five three three la 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 da 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 it's like if all you do every time is the same that's not spontaneous yeah. you're in a rut <laughs> and if they already know what you're gonna pray they know what you're gonna sing you're not being spontaneous you're stuck yeah. you know and so some of the melodic stuff we're just trying to say even if you don't write songs that you're gonna record for the sake of your congregation not wanting to pull their hair out push yourself a little bit in your employment of melody. Learn about strong intervals. Learn about weak. Learn mm. about prosody and it fitting with the meaning. Learn about speed and variation and blah, 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 mm. blah. You, you get what I mean. Mm. So even if you're not a songwriter, if you're just, if you're leading people in songs, you need to understand some stuff about melody. Yeah. Are there particular things which you've noticed the, the songwriters, um, often need to grow in that like there are the same weak areas that come regularly or the same strong areas that come regularly with people well yeah i mean especially these days we're getting better and better with production yeah um so that's cool but we're not getting better with lyrics goodness me i mean if it's not um if it's not a harmful lyric it's at least cliche, usually. <laughs> so it, it, there, there's 210,000 songs in CCLI. So if we're going to put more songs into that overstuffed, glutted, you know, bookshelf, yeah, um, it needs to be something worth putting in there. And it's so easy to to rhyme me with free yeah. love and above. Fire and desire. Actually, if you rhyme any of those in our worship school, you get expelled. You get expelled. There's just only, straight out. Yeah, there's no, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're out. Done. No, not even so, a warning. I better not hear me with free. So um, we, we talk about, like, guys, the reason these are cliches and so overdone is because they're so obvious and so easy. Um, we're going to have to actually work our way around the obvious to get to something that's going to get anyone's attention. Mm. And I feel like... The, the gospel is worth our attention. You know, the glory of God is worth our thinking about. The Bible's full of amazing metaphors. I mean, when we, we study through the Psalms through worship schools, through the 18 months, we go through the whole book of Psalms. And I mean, if you look in Psalms, you find incredible poetic devices. I mean, there's, there's parallelism, there's all kinds of alliteration, there's amazing metaphors, there's stuff about 
you know, I mean, I'm just, I'm just randomly opening the Psalm 7. Um, the one who travails with wickedness has dug a pit and hollowed it out and fallen into the hole which we, which he had made. Random Psalm 715. You know, I wasn't thinking about that. But it's just full of amazing metaphors. Sin is like digging a pit, hollowing it out, and falling into it. Yeah. I've never heard, I've never heard that metaphor in, in one of the 210,000 songs in CCLI. Yeah. But it's the... I just randomly opened to it. So this is so full of metaphor... Our songs are so full of cliche. Metaphors like becomes they open you up to right brain, to imagination, and the biggest worship song. I mean, some of the biggest worship songs I think from the last few years. One of the reasons they're so big, besides prosody and melodic stuff, is lyrically they got metaphor. So he is jealous for me. Loves like a hurricane. I am a tree. Loves like a hurricane is a simile. I am a tree. That's a metaphor. Bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. So the John Mark knows what he's doing. He's an incredible songwriter. And he sets up this song with a metaphor. God's love is like a hurricane. I am a tree. And, and every one of us have seen a tree, whether in person at the beach or like on TV, just getting dominated by the power of a storm. So John Mark starts this whole idea of the song with a metaphor. Revelation song. I mean, it, it, the, the Revelation song is like clothed in splendor, rainbows, living color. It's uh, funny. I'm spacing on the lyrics right now. So. <laughs> um, it, it's so visceral. Like you can see it. You can feel it. You know, rolls of thunder, drum fill. Mm-hmm. You, you, you get it. Uh, Tomlin with How Great Is Our God. It's like he wraps himself in light from Psalm 104. Um, time is in his hands. Like the, these huge songs that last for a long time. Are doing, they're all doing the same things. They're using pretty established poetic devices that, that allow us to enter into the song, to feel it, to, um, to imagine it, to picture. And then every single one of those songs, the verses are so brilliant that the choruses can be so simple. How he loves, oh, how he loves, oh, how he loves, oh. Four words, one of them's not even really a word, you know, it's a letter. <laughs> Um, or, or how, how great is our God? How great is our God? Four words in the chorus of how great is our God. Three in how he loves because the verses have done the, the, yep. the poetry and the visceral so strongly, you know? So yeah, that's a, that's one, one main thought. That's really helpful. Um, I, I wonder, you know, people will be listening to this, I guess, and thinking, yeah, I want to. I want to expand my vocabulary in terms of metaphor, in terms of my poetry, in terms of the kind of... But but I find every time I start to write, I just find my way back. It's like I've got grooves formed in my head. Yeah. And I just find yeah. my way back. Have you got any thoughts for how you kind of bump yourself out of those grooves? Yeah, I think you have to start noticing it first. So I, I think the Psalms is the best place to start. Read through it, um, not just devotionally, or piously, but as an artist, looking at some amazing art. There's 150 poems in here mm. that have been preserved for a couple thousand years. You know, it's a lot longer than the Wesleys. So, so there's stuff in here that's remarkable. So as we start to notice things, then we can start to practice things. But, um, I mean, songwriters, uh, we, are, we, we are so self-deceived, you know, we're... <laughs> Some of the only people that expect to be great at something before we've even tried it. Yeah. I mean, I've never met, never met someone who expected to learn to know how to play the piano before 
taking a lesson yeah. or learning a scale. But songwriters expect, well, I've listened to a lot of songs. I can probably That's do that. Different. You know, it's, it's like artists don't expect that. Mechanics don't expect that. Engineers don't expect that. Only we're only songwriters yeah. expect. And then we're demoralized if it's not good. Like we have to take this pressure off of ourselves and allow ourselves to grow in it. And in the same way that, you know, if you want to be a plumber, you go learn from a plumber. Um, we need to go find someone to help us. But oftentimes, I think we're afraid to get help or afraid to get someone to speak into us because we haven't done a lot of the character work yet uh, to be secure in who we are and okay with, hey, if my song sucks, that doesn't mean that I suck. You know, mm. if my song is horrible, it doesn't mean that I'm horrible. I just had a bad song. No big deal. But if we haven't done some of that character work and the Lord hasn't really healed us from a lot of that internal stuff, then we're going to be very like volatile and very defensive on anything external. Mm. We found um, in our our group of songwriters that our process is a lot about sharing our songs all the way through, getting feedback on them. And it sounds like, you know, some of the same kind of things that you're doing and that what begins as quite a painful I know I've talked to people sometimes when they come for the first time and they uh, I've discovered afterwards they went home shaking on the train or they you know it's also because it's it's such a vulnerable invasive um thing to do and it and it's sore it leaves you sore sometimes because you you're exposing parts of yourself that you thought you could just you could kind of keep contained but actually mm. over time you learn it actually does get a bit less painful it get and you learn so much to appreciate the the input and the feedback and you also learn to begin anticipating it because you're learning about songwriting so rather than do that same thing and face that same bit of feedback or, or so on you intercept that in in the course of your writing um mm-hmm. have you is that so have, do you feel like you've grown in that in terms of being able to expose yourself in your songwriting process yeah absolutely um at, at first i was always so insecure yeah i mean 10 years ago i met stewart and paul oakley and kingsley brought me over to write with these guys and i was all but trembling you know (laughs) i mean i am out of my depth way out of my depth and those guys were so gracious and so kind to sit with me i did not deserve to be in the room i promise you that um but they were so kind and i didn't know anything yet all i had was intuition which yeah. is what a lot of songwriters have all they have is intuition and now i just wish i could go back because now i've read a bunch of books i've gone yeah. i've taken the classes i'm not a great songwriter i just now know why this song isn't great sometimes yeah. um sometimes i can tell you why that's working and why this isn't as opposed to just going yeah i just don't really like it so um, it's been very helpful for me to inform intuition with education. Um, so yeah, it's, <laughs> that has helped me to recognize um, it's not just, I, I don't feel like this is any good. That's not very helpful for someone. That could actually be, they could take that really personally. Mm. But instead I'm saying, look, actually I think your melody is really good. Great job on that. Some of these lyrics are a little cliche. Um, let's work on them. You know, um, and so now I'm not just I don't have just this one broad brushstroke to say I don't like it. Um, I've got a lot of different tools, and if it needs a hammer, I got a hammer. But if all I have is a hammer, then everything is a nail. <laughs> yeah. You know, so so some songs need, especially with with artists and their hearts. I think we've got to have more than a hammer. We we need a feather brush, and we need 
fine point and we need a lot of these things, but not all at once, you know, so Broadly, let's get the colors working well and then we'll start to put some detail in and then at the end we'll go with the fine tooth yeah. comb and filter every syllable and every stress and every line length and all of that stuff. We'll zoom in on all of it. But first, okay, yeah, it's not bad. Let's see next week if we can make it a little bit stronger. Yeah. Um, one of your songs, which I guess is more well known to people, is Sovereign Over Us. Um, yeah. And I'd love to just hear a little bit about how that, where that song came from, how you went about writing that one. Yeah. So um, I was at an EMI Writers Retreat in Nashville. This happens every two years where they bring a bunch of worship leaders together for a couple of days and you just spend a couple hours writing with these people, a couple hours writing with those people. Um, and so I sat down with uh, my friend Brian Brown and Jack Mooring uh, from Leland, Leland's brother. And um, we just kind of started to get some ideas around um, this idea of there's strength and sorrow, beauty and tears. That's kind of about as far as we got. Um, we, we had something about, um, your, but your plans are still to prosper. So we're going through hard times, but you still have good plans for mm-hmm. us. Um, and um, I kind of took it from that writing your tree and then the, writing the rest of the lyrics. Um, so we ha- I had two verses in the chorus. Um, and then it wasn't done yet, but one Sunday night at church, after uh, my pastor was preaching, I was just, we would do these, we'd lead worship in the back set after the sermon, and then we would do a soft dismissal, and I would just go for 30 more minutes and say, hey, if you want to just keep worshiping, just come on. A lot of times just singing new songs, prophetic, spontaneous, whatever. And that bridge came out um, one night during a Sunday night service, just... Um, just started singing even what the enemy means for evil you turn it for our good you turn it for our good um, even in the valley you are faithful working for our good maybe we'd been in Genesis 50 or Jeremiah 29 I'm mm. not sure but um, I do remember my dad as a kid my dad was a walk through the Bible teacher and he, he would I would travel with him some and hear him teach walk through the Bible and um, he would often talk about that line from Joseph you know Genesis 50 where his brothers kind of, they, they recognize, oh gosh, this is Joseph. We sold this guy to slavery and abandoned him and all yeah. this stuff. And, and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good and for the saving of many lives. So that verse got planted into me as a young kid. Um, in high school, Jeremiah 29, 11 got planted into me. And so then in this, in the spontaneous moment, um, a lot of that stuff just kind of came out yeah. in this, in the second. And so, I didn't, I didn't think about it even connecting to the song Sovereign Over Us for probably a couple more weeks um, when I opened the song back up and, and thought, oh, maybe that thing I sang on that Sunday night would work um, for that song. Mm. And, it, and it works really well. Yeah, that's, it's great to hear that um, what's come out in a spontaneous moment, which is how sometimes I guess people often imagine that songs just kind of fall out you know, in, a, in a moment of inspiration. is actually something that's, that's, that's a deep-rooted bit of scripture um, yeah. Not even just an idea or a concept, but almost you know a, a quote that that comes out in yeah. that situation, and the value of taking that stuff in, so that then what comes out has has value in itself. Yeah, I think it's pretty important. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we teach with leading and facilitating worship is that the Holy Spirit's job. Jesus said, when He comes, He'll bring back to remembrance all the things that I've spoken to you. So the Holy Spirit's job is one of the things he does as we lead worship is bring to our minds the things that we've been hearing, mm. 
but you can't remind someone of something that they've never heard. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to listen to the Lord. We have to get into the Word. We have to do our job to give Him something to work with. You know, He can give us the Word of knowledge. I love that. That's great. It's like um, that's that's like a freebie. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, when He gives you something that you've never heard, that's great. But for the most part, He reminds you of stuff that you've already heard. And what's amazing to me is how many times I've come off stage after having led and said something or said a scripture that I didn't even know that I knew. Yeah. And I'll look it up and be like, what's up? Did I look that up? <laughs> <Yeah. Sorry. laughs> um, and sometimes I've made it up. I haven't meant to. Um, or I've just gotten the wrong reference or something. But so many times I'll, I'll end up um, going through an old journal from you know 10 years before and finding my praying through that verse and go, oh, I remember when God put that in me. I haven't thought about that in 10 years. And actually have a horrible memory. I can't remember anything. I can't remember what happened. I can't remember places that I've gone. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll walk into a restaurant with my band and they'll go, remember when we came here? I'm like, we've never been here. They're like, here's a picture of us here. You know? <laughs> I have a terrible memory, but the Holy Spirit has a really great memory. That's you true. Know? And, yeah. and we'll bring stuff to mind that, that we need at the right moment if we've done the work of, yeah. of listening first. That's brilliant. Aaron, thank you. It's been... Uh, Wonderful to speak to you. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I've got one final question, which we ask all of okay. our interviewees. And, right. and this is, I can let you in on a secret. We've been granted permission to rewrite the history of worship songwriting. Um, and this is your opportunity to claim a song by someone else that you would love to have written. And you can and you can claim it for your own. So I wonder if there were a song, a worship song by somebody else where you think, I, I'd love to have written that. Maybe because it's completely outside your style or you just think it's brilliant. Is there, what would you pick? Wow, what a great question. Oh man. Um, I mean, this is going to be, I'm embarrassed by this answer. (laughs) Because one of my best friends wrote this song. Um, But that Good Good Father song. Okay. Um, So those are guys here in our community, one of those guys went to our worship school and they when I heard that song I just thought this is the best worship song I've heard in about five years oh yeah um and I think I tweeted something about that the first time I heard the song and because um it does so many things so well um the things that I that we teach that worship songs need to have we say they, they need great songs in worship have three things they have congregational accessibility, so they're not crazy complicated uh, to sing. They have um, artistic beauty, so they're not boring. Yeah. Um, and they have uh, they're theologically insightful. So we talk about congregation accessible, artistically beautiful, theologically insightful, and I feel like that song it starts out with that. It just drops a bomb. I've heard all this stuff about you. But I've, I've encountered you, and I know what you are. Um, the first time I heard that, I just thought, golly, I wish I'd done that. Because, I mean, it's the whole song, until the bridge, is just three different notes. Mm. It's one, one, two, three, three, two, one, 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 two, three, three, one, one, two, three, three, two, one, one, two, three, three. Then here's a pre-chorus. Uh, two, one, 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 two, three, three, one, one, two, three, two. Chorus three 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 two one three 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 two. It's so easy. Like mm. so, anyone can sing this. 
not hard. My song, I make everything too complicated, you know, or or like it's not any can of be da 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 or whatever. It's so easy. And then they finally bring a fifth note in in the bridge. You are perfect. Oh, they go to five, five, four, three, two. But they never go beyond that. It's like here I'm to worship is five mm. notes. Um, so many of these songs that travel so far are so accessible. But I, that song, it's not just accessible. Um, I think it's artistically beautiful. Um, the way that Ten Thousand Fathers arranged it, I'm a little biased. I think it's the best arrangement <laughs> yeah, of it, course. not because I'm singing on it, and I didn't even arrange it. My guitar player did. Um, but I think theologically, it's insightful too, and people needed to hear that reminder. So I wish I'd written that. There one. you go. That's a great answer. Well, you can now tell your friend that um, you've claimed that one. We've <laughs> we've handed. Out. Unfortunately, we don't have any power with CCLI, but other than that, we're. <laughs> Um, we're rewriting the history that's great Uh, Aaron thanks so much for joining us and uh, we just want to bless you in uh, the rest of your life and ministry thank you Joel great to meet you man